Welcome to Engaging History. This is episode one, an episode aptly titled Introduction. The introduction to myself and my background can be found on my website. However, what I want to introduce in this podcast is my approach to history. My name is Christopher Kinsella, and please know that my podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or any organization. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. Again, the purposes are to engage you in history in a way that you may not have been able to have been taught in high school or even in college classes. What we're going to study or discuss here and what you're going to be able to hopefully have a better understanding of is the angle of history that I will explore as I discuss in this and future podcasts that I cover on world history, as well as in a separate series of podcasts called American History. All of my podcasts will have what my students call, quote unquote, life lessons, where I take what we are learning and I relate it directly to you. This podcast, again, is my opinion and or interpretation of historical events as I have learned to study them and understand them. So getting started then with this idea of history. History is the study of human progress. But notice that word that I had in there, human. That's the part of history that I wanted to explore more deeply. The human part of history, according to Dr. Quincy at the University of Chicago, talks about how this, or debates, whether humans are really unique. Well, let's face it, there's a lot of arguments that obviously can make the case that we clearly are unique. We're at the top of every animal and plant food chain, or in some cases, yes, we can pause and wonder if that's really the case when something as simple but as devastating as the coronavirus can make us truly change our habits and plunge world economies. But the fact of the matter is we're going to get an upper handle on it. We always do. But again, what Dr. Quincy looks into is whether we really are unique. The fact of the matter is we're only born with two fears. Ironically enough, they both begin with the letter F, and no, not one of them is of failing because a baby, an infant, can't comprehend failing. We're born with the two fears, one being fire and the other one being falling or to fall. We'll talk more about fire in the next episode. But humans, again, as we're going to find out, at nine months old, we have a greater learning capacity than any other animal in the animal kingdom. There's two essential aspects or parts to the human mind, the conscious and the subconscious. Ironically, the average person likes to listen to our conscious mind more because that's what's immediately processing all the information that comes in through our five senses. However, the subconscious mind, folks, is the reason we even got to the point where we're at. Sadly, we tend to listen to it not nearly enough as we listen to our conscious mind. And the fact of the matter is the subconscious mind at its weakest, is 200,000 times more powerful than the conscious mind is at its strongest. More about that can be read in the book called The Social Animal by David Brooks. Here's where a deadly quirk comes in with the study of the human being. To study the human race, why we tick, why we do the things that we do, really is a study of war. Wars, we're going to find out if you looked at my background. Yes, I'm a military and presidential historian, 
Please don't think, though, that when we get to eventual wars, those fought by the Greeks, the Romans, the wars of the late Middle Ages, the American Revolution, and on, I'm not going to get into the minutiae of the guns and the battles and who fought with what and try to replicate what the commanders were doing or certainly to second-guess them. That's not my place. What I'm looking at is the human psychology of war, why we got involved in the first place, and what goes through the mind of the soldier as he or she heads into battle for the first time. The study of war is divided into four unequal stages, dominated by animals. That won't be studied here. That has its own sciences by itself, zoology, some uh, aspects of biology. We then get into primitive humans as the second stage. Primitive humans, now we're going to look at our anthropology and our humanities. We don't get into the field of history until we get to civilized humans. And then finally, to the current stage, humans and technology. Humans and technology is not the first time that we see a person conquer their first cell phone. By humans and technology, we're talking about an individual whether it had been in the Fertile Crescent in modern-day Iraq or in northeastern Africa. It's the first time that a human being picked up an object in order to get a job done, whether it be to catch an animal for food, to work the ground in order to obtain food, or, more likely, to use that piece of quote-unquote technology to defend themselves from an enemy opposite them. Here's where Charles Darwin kicks in to assist us and Dr. Quincy in terms of the discussing the aspects of war and human behavior. There's four characteristics Charles Darwin had concluded that has allowed almost every animal species on planet Earth to have survived for as long as they did. Whether they are now extinct or go back to the dinosaurs and are more plentiful than even the human population, there are generally four characteristics that animals, again, use to their advantage. And I'd like you to think as we discuss these quickly, which one of these four do human beings have? The first one is protective armor. Protective armor such as turtles, snails, clams. How about that? Do we have that? No. The best we can do is six layers of tissue called our skin, which is separately an organ of the body. But that's not enough that's going to protect us the way the shell can on a turtle or a snail. How about tenacity? Boas and bears that can deliver death in the first strike repeatedly. That's not us either. We don't have the muscle mass to do that repeatedly one after another. How about striking power? Forceful fighting. Cobras and lions. Now we don't have the bone density for that, much less, much less the muscle mass. So that only leaves us one more door. Maybe it's in this one. And that's the one called mobility. It's a war of movement. Deer, birds, monkeys. Do we have that? Without that bone density and that low ratio muscle mass, we should be one of the fastest life forms on the planet yet we are one of the slowest. So we don't have that either. Now, clearly it can be argued that we have endurance when it comes to mobility. 
that as a percentage or a proportion, that we can run 26.2 miles, as Philippides did in ancient Greece, which eventually gave birth to the modern-day marathon. But the fact of the matter is, folks, we can only do that at a certain mile per hour, which is extremely slow. So what good does it do to be able to outrun the animal on the continent of Africa that kills more humans than any other one, the hippopotamus? As slow as that animal is, it outruns us easily. So much for my endurance. That said, we ran out of the four options that Darwin was uncovering, which led him to essentially hold his writing instrument and look up into the air when he was sailing on the HMS Beagle in the 1850s and wonder, why then are we at the top of the food chain? And that answer simply, folks, is our brain, our mind, the complexity of the human brain. So we're going to take that quirk, though, that's going to eventually come back and to bite us as it has been doing in the past 402,000 years in just a moment. So when it comes to a fighting, fighting about things, war, another way to put it, the primary motivation for aggression of different species, simply put, is food. This is the reason, as my brother Mark demonstrated for me and others many times who's had many fish tanks throughout his life, that essentially you can put two fish that would, given the opportunity, tear each other's throat out, and you can put them in the same tank with no dividers. As long as one is a top feeder and one's a bottom feeder, they can essentially coexist peacefully in the same tank. Again, as long as they have an adequate source of food. That one was easy. However, what about the same species? What do two lions fight about? Two cobras, two mako sharks, two polar bears. Now it gets a little more tricky and a lot more interesting. However, food is not even in the top three. The third, coming into the order of importance, the third one that is fought about is dominance. Who's on top? Who's in charge? Who's the big toe of the group? fighting dominance of the same species. Coming in at number two, territory. Whose territories is whose? And it'll be a fight for that. And then the most important, arguably the greatest drive in all living things, the passing on of our DNA code. To put it bluntly in one one syllable word, sex. That, folks, are the three top reasons why species of the same type will fight. However, when it's the same species, here's where that deadly human quirk comes in. The more closely a set of animals are related, the less the fighting intensity. So when you see a lion and a lion fighting about one of those top three things or two polar bears, oh, it can look intense. You can hear the growls and the roars and the saliva flinging everywhere. But if you really watch them, they're actually quite tame in their fighting. The claws are not out. They're not with their jaws trying to go in for a kill because they know if they miss, they probably won't get that chance again. So the fighting, the more closely a set of animals are related, the less the fighting intensity. However, opposite species, a lion versus a jackal, well, that's going to be a fight, a vicious fight to the death. And if you're wondering why I'm focusing on lions, maybe it's because they are considered the king of the jungle. 
Well, when you get some time, write down this name and Google it sometime or on YouTube and just watch it. It's called the Battle at Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R, and see who wins the fight when it's between a buffalo, a lioness, much less a pride of lionesses, female lions, and an alligator. Careful where you bet where you put your money for the bet on who's going to win. So with every animal out there in the animal kingdom, the more closely the animals are related, the less the fighting intensity for every animal. That is true with the sole exception of us. Only in the human race, human beings, the closer we are related, the more intensely we fight and will fight to the death. That's a loaded statement. I get that. But that's what I'm focusing on with these podcasts. Why, when we have one of the most complexes, greatest minds that could ever be put onto a life form, what went wrong in our wiring that turned us into the, one of the most aggressive, if, if not the most aggressive species on earth? Don't believe me? When we start the next podcast, we're going to be starting at the origins of what we call world history, human history. And that's going to be 400,000 BC. Now, as the first couple of episodes after this, you're going to want to you know, wear some seatbelts there or tie yourself in because we're going to move very, very quickly from 400,000 BC before we begin to slam on the brakes about 7,000 BC. But we need to start out that far. Why? For reasons that I'll explain there when we get to that episode. However, when we begin at 400,000 BC, and if you follow my podcast all the way up through to my last one that discusses events in the current year, what you're going to find is that we will lose more human lives from 1900 to the year 2000 as a percentage of the population, not just headcount. We will lose more human lives in the 100-year period of 1900 to 2000, then from 400,000 BC to 1899 combined. Depending upon your definition of war, essentially there have been 6,000 wars on the planet since humans began walking upright. Of that 400,000, 402,000 years we're going to study, the world has actually not been actively engaged in a war for only a handful of years. It is an awe-inspiring statistic, one proven many times. Tom Mekaitis's book, Conventional and Unconventional War, published in 2017. It's also been discussed in Bruce Porter's book, War and the Rise of the State. Don't take my word for it. This is the reason for the deadly statistics. That said, Consider this. In the year 1899, the last year when, by and large, it seemed that we fought a lot more peacefully than we will at the dawn of the next year, a soldier could have been involved in the Spanish-American War on either side, the Spanish or the Americans. However, if that soldier had the most up-to-date, state-of-the-art model weapon, it still was going to take him a couple of seconds after he fired his weapon before he would have to move to a new location clean and restock and load his weapon before he could fire it again. Because of that, 
Soldiers took time and were extremely careful before they fired their weapon at the enemy. Because what if they miss? And that enemy turns around with their weapon loaded and pointed at them. You don't get to say, time out, sorry, let me try again. What if this soldier is successful in killing the enemy soldier 300 yards away? Great. But what now about the other soldiers around him? He doesn't have time to sit there and reload, so he needs to escape, figure out a place where he can safely, again, clean and reload. That's 1899. It's 16 years to that, and we're in the year 1915. That same soldier, 16 years older now, doesn't look to his left and his right anymore before he decides to fire his weapon. Because as long as his magazine is full next, over his shoulder, that gun now we now call the machine gun, he essentially controls that part of the battlefield as far as the radius of those bullets can fly. With the machine gun, folks, one machine gunner in World War I was worth more than 80 soldiers in the Spanish-American or the American Civil War. It's a deadly improvement in technology. Now, add 30 more years, all within one person's lifetime, and we arrive at the year 1945. Now, we have the capability of putting one bomb in one plane with a handful of pilots that can decimate 70,000 lives instantly. Folks, we had never created a weapon before where literally the enemy became war itself because in nuclear warfare, there are no winners. More about that when we get to 20th century American or world history. However, knowing that 1945, I know if you're listening still that you might back up and say, okay, (laughs) all right, but you know, come on, Chris, 1945, we can kind of take the gloves off now. The world's worst uh, war to date has been concluded. Now we get a little more peaceful as the 20th century wears on. Really? How do you think the Japanese feel about that? How about the Vietnamese, Laotians, Cambodians? Folks, for nine straight years, every eight minutes, we unloaded a plane full of bombs over a place called Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. So this is the reason for the deadly statistics. Why, despite the advancement of the human mind, why are we so wired as to truly want to be more violent with those that are the most like us? Another activity you can do to prove my point in the 6,000 wars in the history of the planet, try to find one where it's people of an opposite skin color fighting one another. Good luck with that. Also, if you don't believe me, look at it this way. Ethnically diverse countries, that's the United States, we have a 3% probability of conflict. 3%. In our 240 plus years as an independent nation, we've only had one civil war. Historically, we're well behind the statistics on that. Ethnically homogenous countries, they have a 23% probability, a practically one out of four chance that civil war will erupt among them because they are so closely related. In 1999 alone, there were 27 major wars raging on the planet. All but two of them were civil wars. So only two of them 
was country A against country B. Every other one, they were fighting within one's own country borders. That research done by Juan Enriquez in his book called As the Future Catches You. So thank you for listening to the introduction, my approach to the human part of history. Why does the human mind operate the way it does? Why do people make the decisions that they do when in leadership capacity? Please note, in terms of my information, despite the fact that, again, I've been teaching for over 20 years at the college level, prior to that, I've taught grades fifth grade all the way through high school, as I'm a licensed Illinois educator. However, my information that I stay relevant on comes from some of the sources that I'll mention here, Time Magazine that tends to lean to the left, foreign affairs that tends to lean to the right. In none of my sources and in none of my podcasts will you ever be able to determine if I'm a liberal Democrat, a conservative Republican, or anywhere in between. My point here is not to simply give you information to get you to my way of thinking. Who says I have the right answers? Ask my wife. She'll be the first to admit I usually don't have the right answers. So no, my point is not, just as in my classrooms, is not to pound my chest to get you to think the way I'm thinking. No, I'm going to give you information, lots of information. I'm going to give you things to think about that sadly, again, you probably never were thought to consider when you were taught this in high school or in college. And I'm just going to give you the information. You draw your own conclusions. I'm never going to insult your intelligence by telling you that there was one reason something happened. In my podcasts, Two plus two can equal three, four, or five as an analogy. Other sources of my information are from National Geographic. Why? Because those scientists and journalists that write for National Geographic, their discoveries, they don't care if it hurts Republicans. They don't care if it hurts Democrats or any government out there. They just report the facts as they find it which is the reason you'll hear me quoting from National Geographic quite a bit. In terms of my daily feed of news source, I also watch the only source that I have, the PBS NewsHour. The PBS NewsHour, why? Because of all the news sources out there. In terms of being smack in the middle of the spectrum, only the PBS NewsHour comes as close to the middle as any other news source out there. So it is reading the above as well as reading a boatload of biographies, autobiographies, and other books on all aspects of history. I also do extensive traveling. I've been to four continents, over 20 countries, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, throughout North America, as well as Western and Eastern Europe. The idea when I travel there, folks, as well as traveling throughout the United States, is not to find the first population, the first group of people where I can chinwag in front of. No. When I'm out there in somebody else's lands, all I want to do is just ask a couple of questions and sit back and listen. Take in what they're saying. Look at what they're not saying. Watch the body language. Look at the beautiful landscape around them and the way they interact with it. That's what you're getting over two decades of travel experience and reading and studying and research in these podcasts. So again, Thank you for listening. However, as we end, I would like you to consider that before we get into that next podcast, I would just like you to think about the next time you're writing something down, anything, whether it be a shopping list, a memo, or a report. Why are you writing? Why did humans eventually start writing? Speaking, why did we start speaking? 
And what did we first talk about? I also, when you get home tonight, whether it's a home of yours or some place you're renting, whether it's an apartment, condo, townhouse, house or mansion for that matter, look out your windows. Why did you choose to live where you're living? Why there? Will there be any connection between why you're living where you're at and why the first primitive humans chose to call their places home? And lastly, if there was an emergency, a fire, a raging fire, and you had to get out of your house within a matter of minutes, if not seconds, what would you grab to take with you? What, if you could only take an armful of things, what would it be? And most importantly, why? And once again, when we get to the next podcast, you're going to find out that you're really not behaving or operating any differently than our humans that came before us hundreds of thousands of years ago. So that's what we'll discuss in the next episode. Go to my website, cekinsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you'd like more book recommendations and where I may obtain my information, I'm happy to share those. Likewise, though, if you ever are reading something or have read something that pertains to what we were just talking about, I was talking about here, please let me know that as well. As I tell students that we begin every college class, if there's 20 students in the class, I tell them there's 21. If there's 25 students, I say there's 26 students. And they look around and they say, no, you're missing somebody. I said, no, I'm not, because I'm a student too. The day that I am not a student is the day that I need to hang it up. That said, if you like what we've discussed, again, please leave me a review on my website. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.